You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Several years ago, a professor at Princeton named Gerard O'Neill conceived of the idea of putting large colonies in space, large artificial places where people could live and work. The phrase telecommuting was first coined in the early 1970s by a NASA employee named Jack Nillis. At that time, he was working remotely on a complex NASA communication system, and he coined the phrase telecommuting to describe working from home. Nillis later wrote a book that claimed telecommuting could offset traffic congestion, promote resource conservation, and be a major convenience for those so engaged. This is going to be good. You know, we all put in a lot of hours here, plus time spent commuting, time that we could be spending with our families. Well, Bell Atlantic told me about a thing called telecommuting. Hi, Julian, I see you have your computer linked to the telephone line. Can you tell us how you did that? Yes, well, it's very simple, really. What you um, want uh, is something that you're going to enjoy. You also want something that pays well and something that you can sustain. Well, if you haven't thought of telecommuting, some say now's the time to try it. By the early 2000s, more than 37 million Americans were teleworking and the concept had effectively taken off. Teleworking is becoming more common for many professionals, but the advantages are not limited to just reducing carbon emissions from driving to work daily. In addition to the societal and environmental benefits, CEOs of major companies claimed it increased productivity and offered greater flexibility for workers. But when COVID-19 hit, telework quickly went from an option to a necessity. Overnight, more than half of Americans went to work over Zoom. Months into the pandemic, we're starting to see the consequences. People now complain about Zoom fatigue, a loss of personal privacy, and inadequate spaces at home for video conferencing, while also taking care of children and aging relatives. Mental and physical health issues are coming into focus as people report headaches, eye strain, and overall exhaustion. The supposed productivity benefit may have peaked, as CEOs of leading companies report a decline in creativity and innovation. In the current environment, many major companies have announced that their employees can work remotely on a long-term basis. But are we ready for this? Thanks for joining our podcast. I'm Darrell West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a book about AI entitled Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. COVID has accelerated many technology trends, such as online learning, telemedicine, e-commerce, and remote work. But one of the most important developments during the pandemic has been the rise of video conferencing. With restrictions on travel and concern about personal health, Many people and organizations have embraced online platforms such as Zoom, BlueJeans, WebEx, Skype, and Teams. Many individuals have days that are filled with video meetings and online events. On the one hand, this has been a positive development. It allows people to stay in touch and maintain organizational communications at a time when it is impossible to gather in person. 
It helps companies function and discuss ongoing activities. Schools can offer courses online, and physicians can meet patients over secure conference lines. Without video conferencing, this pandemic would have been much more isolating for people. Yet, many are also complaining about Zoom fatigue and the stress and exhaustion associated with having so many online meetings. Uh, they note that these meetings require a high level of attention and generate more anxiety than phone calls or in-person meetings. Some feel it alters the caliber of the communications and raises a number of policy issues. All of this raises the question of how to cope with Zoom fatigue. To discuss these issues, we are pleased to be joined by two distinguished experts. Nicole Turner-Lee is director of the Brookings Center for Technology Innovation and a senior fellow in government studies. Uh, she is an expert on technology policy and is writing a great book about the importance of digital access. John Villasenor is a non-resident senior fellow in governance studies and a professor of engineering and public policy at UCLA. He is the author of a recent tech tank piece entitled, Zoom is now critical infrastructure and that's a concern. So I wanna start with uh, Nicole. Uh, you are in hot demand as a public speaker. Uh, you have endless Zoom calls to speak with colleagues uh, at Brookings uh, webinars and at external events. How would you describe your feelings about all these Zoom calls? Well, thank you, Daryl, and hello, John. How would I describe Zoom? I'm not going to use an expletive for this podcast because I'm a polite young lady. <laughs> but I would say when it first started out, I was excited. I mean, I cut my commute down for over you know, an hour driving to the office or hour and a half taking the train. I'm able to do things that I wasn't able to do before in terms of managing my time at home. But at the same token, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I think we do more meetings via Zoom than we've ever done before in life. And I think of that, Daryl, when you talk about the convenience of being able to pop online, for many, it's an opportunity to sort of see the, seize the moment of your time. But just in terms of my Zoom fatigue that John wrote about, I find when I'm doing panels, for example, that what once took an hour for prep now takes four hours between the logistical setup, the panel prep, the, in some cases, the recording, and some folks are asking you to come back and do Q&A. And while I think on the one side, this is fantastic because this is such a great way for policymakers to accelerate response to public opinion and general issues facing the world. But I also think that without some level of self-care, that many people are going to be even further fatigued and exhausted as a result of not leaving that one particular space in their room and in their house to actually do these calls. So I like it. It's sort of a love-hate, Daryl and John, but I can tell you one thing. There are some days that I don't even want to see the word Z on my computer at all. <laughs> That's a, a great line, uh, Nicole, and I certainly relate to what you're uh, saying, having uh, had a new book that uh, just uh, came out, and I found it's much easier to do book promotion over video conferencing as opposed to the old model where you would physically fly someplace. It's a one- or two-day uh, commitment. It uh, takes a lot of time. With Zoom and these other uh, platforms, you can basically do a 60-minute uh, webinar with a group across the country or even around the world and then move on with the rest of your day. So definitely uh, much more convenient. And John, I know that 
you do lots of events as well, and you spend a lot of time on uh, video conferencing. You also teach at UCLA, where many classes are being offered via, uh, via video conferencing. What has been your experience? How is Zoom affecting teacher performance and student learning? Well, that's such an interesting and important question. And I've got a, a perspective, not only now from last spring, but also, of course, if our classes this fall are, are on Zoom. I think there are probably more downsides uh, than upsides, but there are some upsides. First on the downsides, uh, one obvious challenge to teaching uh, by Zoom is that you can't read student reactions particularly well. One of the, one of the most effective tools, I think, for good teaching in the classroom is, is for the instructor to really be looking at the expressions of the students in the classroom. You know, are they, do they seem to be getting it? Where are they looking? Are they paying attention? Do they look confused? Do they look interested? And, and when, when all of the students are simply sort of portrayed like as small squares in a, in a grid on the screen, th there's really no ability to do that. And, and even if there were, not everyone has their video on. Uh, we also lose a lot of the dynamism of, of the in-person interactions that you have in, in, a, in a class. You lose the ability to, for example, show a, a PowerPoint or visual on, on, the, on the wall in front of the class while also having the students be able to see you. Of course, on Zoom, we can screen share, but then the students just see the, the screen and then the, the speaker, the, the instructor in this case, just becomes a, a little, little square on the, on the side. Uh, and then you also lose all, all these these unplanned serendipitous interactions where you know very often immediately before and immediately after class in, in the sort of in, in the physical world you know students would you know converse with each other converse with me you know talk about research projects and and those conversations would often lead to for example students you know teaming together on projects or students working with me in a laboratory later on and so those unplanned interactions are, are aren't just aren't happening and, and so that's a loss and i think students are more likely to be distracted in doing other things I, i'm not naive enough to think that if i'm teaching a class that for every single moment of that class every single student is watching in rapt attention to everything that's going on i would imagine that at some time some of them are responding to texts and, and so on. And, and, I, and I understand that distraction uh, because there are a lot of distractions out there. One thing I'll say is I, I'm teaching a class with 80 students now, and I taught a class with about 25 students uh, in the spring. And there's the, you know I'm doing my best to make the class with 80 students as interactive as possible. And I think it's been going well, but it's certainly the case that a smaller class, a class where you can actually see every student uh, on the screen at the same time, uh, it, it, the, the loss is smaller when you're with the smaller class than with the bigger class. On the upside, and there are some upsides. One example is guest speakers. Next week in, in my UCLA class, I'm having this absolutely terrific person who works at Google, and, and she's going to come into the class and talk for an hour and a half or so on, on her work on content moderation, which is an incredibly important and timely topic. Now, this is a somebody who it would have been really hard to convince her to take what really would have been a full day. You know, to, to fly down from the Bay Area to Los Angeles, you know, take a, an Uber or a taxi or whatever up to UCLA, give a guest lecture, and then, you know, go back to the Bay Area. That, that would have cost pretty much a whole day. Whereas because it's really going to only, you know, take an hour and a half of her time, then I'm able to get her to come be a guest speaker in her class. So that's a, that's a real advantage. Another advantage is location flexibility, right? You know, in, in, in the sort of pre-pandemic world, if 
if a student, you know, was say had to be out of town for, for some reason, then they miss class and, and that's a loss for that student. Now, as long as they're a place where there's a, a good internet connection, they, they can attend class. And then there's even small things like the chat channel. There's been some really useful things that students have put in the chat channel. You know, for example, we were discussing one of the California ballot propositions in a class on earlier this week. And, and I, I said, I wasn't, wasn't sure exactly what the text was. And, you know, five seconds later, a student put put a link to it in the tech, in the chat channel and everybody in the class could see it. So there there are some upsides. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially on the guest speaker front. So at Brookings, we're doing a lot of online webinars as well. And we've had exactly the same experience because in the old model, when we were doing in-person events within our building, we were dependent on speakers who could actually be in Washington, D.C. and at Brookings to join our webinars. Uh, now you can get people from Capitol Hill people from California, people from outside the United States. So it definitely has expanded our talent pool. And it's also much easier to do international conferences. I mean, I have spoken in Korea virtually. Uh, we've had uh, people from other countries tune into our events. So it definitely provides a lot of flexibility on uh, that front. So do either one of you have any personal tips on how to manage all these video conferences or any advice on how to reduce stress levels? One of the things that I've learned as I've done more panels and keynotes and meetings via video recording is to schedule time between them. I think we sort of assumed, like you do with the meeting, the meeting is over. You may be able to stay in the same conference room. You may be able to stay on the same conference line. You know, there's a protocol to logging off and then logging back in. And based on what the platform is, which I hate to say that I probably have used every video conferencing platform that is available. You may have to come in through different browsers or you may have to download uh, software. So there's a lot of value in those tech preps. I mean, even go down to the wire of whether or not people can see you. When I first started uh, Zooms, I actually was on a television interview and the producer sent me a list of all the things I needed to buy to have the right lighting. And so what I did was I, a best practice is I established one place in my house where I actually do these Zoom calls where everything stays, the books that are sort of elevating the screen, the lights are in a, the same position, and everyone in my house knows that they cannot go there or touch it, even the dog, uh, because it will throw off my studio. So I think for people who are looking for tips, you know, find that one spot, schedule accordingly, etc. I would also say, you know, I'm a parent. I'm a working parent. I have a child that's doing virtual school. And what I'm also learning is when I'm down in the basement Zooming, She's up Zooming on her classrooms and there's a mismatch within our household because as a working parent, I can't often check on her, particularly if I've been sitting in the same spot for six to eight hours. So I would recommend one of the things that we're doing is moving my studio closer to where she studies. So even though she has said to me, she's 13 years old, she told me that I talk kind of loud and she doesn't want to hear me for six hours straight uh, because uh, she has to listen to me and the teacher. But, you know, just trying to find a space for working parents where you're in closer proximity to your children, because unfortunately, this pandemic has made many working mothers, not just the uh, professional, but the cook, who are, you know, kids to our partners. We're doing things for our extended family, trying to manage our own self-care simultaneously. So I would suggest to anyone, you know, do a check and sort of do an assessment and inventory of, is this space working for you? What else do you need to do? Is there a way that you could get family buy-in about the location so you don't have to keep changing up your, uh, figuring out where you have to sit, you know, to do your call with the appropriate lighting, um, space the time in between. And then the last tip I would say is when it's time to take a break, stop, 
<laughs> so the other day, I think I did five Zoom calls and Daryl knows this in like one day. And so by the last Zoom call, not only did I not have a voice, my daughter looked at me and she said, your eyes are bloodshot, mom. <laughs> and on top of that, I was exhausted. And so I think when it's time for you to acknowledge that you have really put too much in a day, either be mindful that your next meeting will be via audio only, no camera. So give yourself that permission or make the decision that you're going to have a limit of how many of these you're going to do within one period of time. John? Yeah, I'll just add to that. I mean, the, and, and compliment that by sort of talking about some of the things I try to do in in my in my Zoom teaching, which is the the large majority of the thing I, I do or seem to be doing recently in Zoom. And what I what I try to keep in mind and always remember is that you know these students, you know, I'm only you know with them for the duration of my class, but of course they're taking you know presumably four or five classes, and so they're spending a lot of their day doing this, and so. I can't imagine a more mind-numbing experience than sitting in front of a laptop computer just passively watching a screen for, you know, four, five, six hours a day. So knowing that, I try my best to make my classes as engaged and interactive as possible. And I've always tried to do that, but I'm trying to do that even more. And so, for example, you know, this breakout room function, which uh, I frankly hadn't really fully appreciated before the pandemic uh, in Zoom, I, I use all the time. And actually, I found it to be really good. You know, I'll give this, I'll give the students a prompt and a question to discuss and break them into groups of four or five people. And they talk in those groups for, you know, 10, 15 minutes and they come back. Well, we, in our most recent class, we also had a really interesting sort of full class discussion where we were, you know, just, it's a, just a, here's an example. We were talking, it's an engineering ethics class. And one of the things uh, that I, I did is I had them read Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. And one of the exercises we did is I had a, a couple of, you know, four or five, you know, short excerpts from that. And we just had different students from the class volunteer to read those excerpts to the whole class. And it was a really powerful way to engage with that incredibly important content. And I, and I would like to think that by, you know, having students as full participants in these, in these, you know, in these classroom sessions, that it helps both make it more effective for learning and also uh, less less stressful and less fatiguing. Yeah, I agree with uh, all those suggestions. I also am trying to take more breaks uh, between uh, sessions just as a way to uh, manage the schedule. I am having to drink a lot more water, which is always a good health practice uh, anyway, but just I'm talking more. And so I do have to uh, think about my uh, voice and how to uh, maintain that. I'm also just trying to get more organized about the calls. Like I've set up a speaking file folder in which I put the login information, the password, because when you have days with multiple Zoom calls and sometimes they're back to back, like you don't have a lot of time to be looking for that information. So if you have it all in one place, it just makes it easier. And then the one advantage that I've discovered with a Zoom meeting is it's much easier to sneak out of that meeting like maybe five or 10 minutes early than it is like an in-person meeting where it's very noticeable if you're getting up from the table and exiting. So uh, video conferencing actually allows you to cut short uh, some uh, meetings. Do you think uh, this uh, development is a short-term development for the duration of the pandemic or has our landscape permanently changed and video conferencing is going to be the norm of the future? That is the one of the most important questions. You know, it's still uh, early days, unfortunately. I think in terms of understanding how the pandemic is is going to reshape, you know, how we interact with one another generally. But in relation to universities, I think at least in the short term, 
the days of being able that in a position where we can require students and, and professors and teachers to be in the classroom are over. And, and, and the reason that's hard is that there, I think there is, well, one hopes, going to be a, a return to at least quasi-normalcy where we do have some people in the classroom. And it's, it's a huge challenge because it's, it's really hard to optimize teaching when you have people who are both in person and online at the same time. In other words, if, if everyone's in the classroom with me, I can teach one way and I can optimize knowing that we're all sharing this physical space together. But in doing so, if there's you know a handful of people who are just watching it online, they're going to have, I think, you know a, a substandard experience relative to the people who are in the room. On the other hand, if I optimize for an online format and, and I'm doing it in front of a group of people who are also in the room, then those who are in the room might think, well, gosh, why am I taking the trouble to sort of trek over to this classroom if, you know, I would have had just as good an experience online. So I think I don't know how we're going to work that out because I think, again, you can optimize for one, not the other, but when we do have both, I'm not sure what the solution is going to be. Yeah. You know, and I agree with that. And I, I love what you're talking about, John, because I want to kind of break it down in three layers because I've had three generations of people in my household who are now all virtual, right? So for my my 13-year-old who is in eighth grade, this is really tough for her. You know, there are times that I've read up to, you know, from my, my seat to run up to check on her and she's literally laying in the bed or she's got blankets over the, you know, three quarters of her body trying to figure out what is going on. And I think that poses a challenge to young people. She's a very social child where, you know, being on a computer and actually looking at the teacher. In fact, I was up late last night going through her progress report and having conversations with teachers because because even the parental engagement is different. Uh, whereas before I was able to see what was she bringing home? What was she struggling with? Now, you know, the conversations I've had with two teachers last night is I'm concerned with this is not working for her learning style. And so I think, Daryl, to your point, if this goes forward for the K through 12 population, we're going to have to really think about this because there are going to be some kids who require more in-person, some kids who do relatively well, you know, online, and some kids who could do a little bit of both. But I think at the end of the day, most parents of kids of this age are kind of frustrated because we didn't feel that we would be thrust into a homeschooling position. But, you know, we are here and I'm sure that there are going to be schools that are going to continue to do so with regards to virtual education. Then you have this piece where my son is in college. And so he's been there since August and all of his classes are actually online. So what they do is they take the classes from within their dorms. And he has a roommate and I asked him the other day, how is he managing that? He said, well, it works out perfectly because my classes are in the afternoon and my roommate's classes are in the morning. But you could also tell when I speak to him that you know his college is really trying to recreate the experience of for students of being able to sort of tether between, you know, being online, but being in a dorm where you have some kind of, you know, physical proximity to people, which, you know, in many respects, he really hasn't had a huge college experience, particularly, and John, you know better than I, when it comes to like the extracurricular stuff. You know, Greek fraternities and sororities are not necessarily doing the type of traditional, you know, invitations or informationals about that. There are certain clubs that have not necessarily been enacted that he's not been able to join. So he just told me, like my daughter, well, I've been doing journalism as a as sort of a after after hour thing, and I love it. But that's something that's very much you know tied to what you could do on the computer versus a sport. And then I think for adults. I think that this is a convenience for working parents who have had a long commute. It's a great opportunity for people who are in particular industries to sort of manage their time differently. But I do worry without the values incorporated in companies around when is the good time to log off? 
or the lack of expectation that you'll be online for the whole duration of the 12 hours, 24 hours of a day. You know, when do you start the workday? When do you end it? I do think that those are going to be some concerns in the workplace that may come up. And so I think going forward, as we look at the long-term viability of this, where there are cost savings for companies to sort of not have the real estate expenses, we sacrifice stuff. And I think based on where we are in this ecosystem, it's really important for us to see what may be some of the mental health consequences. It it reminds me as a sociologist, the last thing, of Robert Putman's book, Bowling Alone. (laughs) And so I feel like we're all on these Zoom calls and we're all interfacing with digital, but in many respects, we're alone (laughs) when we're actually within the verticals of these areas in which we work, learn, or interest groups. So just something to think about going forward that I think we need to be really careful about ensuring that the institutions that are using this also come up with a set of values um, and expectations to allow people the same type of personal care experiences that they would have if they left their home to work and then they returned back. That is an important point. And I think people also are wondering how Zoom alters the nature of communications. Will human interactions be different in the future as the world moves towards video conferencing? What may be lost if that becomes the common norm? I can chime in with some thoughts on that. I think just an incalculable incalculable amount is is lost. Uh, And you think about, you know, we're social, we're social beings. And if I think about my own personal and professional, you know, relationships, you know, so many of those relationships started spontaneously. In other words, when I, you know, without having been planned, you know, for example, people I now uh, collaborate with professionally who I only started talking to because I happened to be standing next to them, you know, out in a hallway during a break in a conference. And, and that, of course, never would have happened if, if, if things were online. And so I think that's you know a profound change in in how we kind of we kind of interact. I also think you know as much as I you know certainly don't miss you know sitting in the airplane boarding area and hearing the announcement that the airplane the flight is delayed because of some issue. I you know I I do miss I think the the mere fact that it actually takes some time and effort and expense to to physically convene increases our motivation and desire to sort of make those physical convenings worthwhile and to get as much as we can out of them. And the investment is obviously a lot lower if all I have to do is open my laptop and, and click a link and go on Zoom. So I think that that is important as well. And I think also, you know, and I'm this is something way outside my area of expertise, but I, I, I've heard from others that, that it's an issue and it, and it strikes me as perfectly, incredibly important, is the longer this goes on, the more you have, you know, people in the K through 12, you know, children who who are, are kind of becoming educated and growing up with, with this as their new normal. And I don't even think we can comprehend how that might reshape how they see the world uh, if this goes on for too much longer. Yeah, you know, I agree. Like I said, I have a 13-year-old upstairs who goes back and forth. I mean, she's an A student, but this is tough, you know? And I was talking to a friend of mine whose daughter is a more introverted than mine, who said she absolutely loves it. She's all virtual and she loves the fact that she doesn't have to go anywhere. But both of us were concerned about both of our children, you know, in terms of their ability to have the mental capacities and faculties in terms of what the world will uh, require of them. And I think at the end of the day, you know, on John, on your point on learning, I think we do have to think about the impact of all virtual. I mean, I'm a big, big fan evangelist around the power of technology, but I do worry that if 
teachers um, aren't picking up on the cues that you discussed, John, or understanding that kids are different types of learners, uh, that that might be a challenge going forward, particularly if you have a child that has a multiplicity of uh, factors when it comes to engaging them and learning in some way or form. But we we do have this challenge of a pandemic in front of us. So there's very little that we can do right now. But I do also worry on the social front. So I have to tell you, you know, I haven't seen my mother in four, seven months because she is in New York. She has a rare, you know, condition and she's highly susceptible and likely to get sick. And so I literally said to her the other day, I'm tired of looking at you on Zoom. I'm going to just drive four hours to New York and we're going to wait from you from the car just so I can see your face. And if you have a mother from New York, you would know that she would tell you, don't do it because I'm not going to open my blinds um, <laughs> because I don't want you to come upstairs. And I think part of it is like what we're going to lose by uh, being in this space is I think the physical convenings matter. We're social individuals. And losing, I was on a panel the other day and we were speaking about, you know, we as individuals, we need this social um, acceptance. We need some confirmation. I was reading that there are many relationships that have not survived the Zoom period, the quarantine period, excuse me, because, you know, people have come to find out about their significant others in ways that they never thought they would find out about them, right, in terms of their needs. And I think at the end of the day, there have been really creative ways that people have used Zoom. I've, I have a, a group of people in my family who do family reunion Sundays once a month and bring people up to Zoom so that we could see each other. But this is not the way that we were kind of taught and, and trained to live. And so I think going forward, we will probably, Daryl, to your point, have to figure out how to like put Zoom within the context of real life situations, you know? where in some way people are interacting um, differently, where you can be on a Zoom, but maybe you're in a park or you're sitting at a Starbucks and you're doing more collaborative learning or, you know, you're doing something that's allowing you to see that it's not just about the screen and it's not just about the digital, but it's about the lessons and the learnings and the hugs, the virtual hugs and the conversations that actually matter. And so until we get past this hump where we're all kind of stuck on the technology, I think we'll still sort of be here, you know, which to me kind of scares the bejesus out of me because I, at some point I'm like, I, people who know me were listening to me. Yes, I'm all over it. I am like the Oprah of technology, but I kind of also like, you know, being home and working and thinking and creating and writing my book without any interruption. But I think this inserts another aspect of our lives that we also have to manage as we've talked about before. Yeah, it does seem like there will be important long-term uh, consequences. I keep waiting for the new TV series, CSI Zoom. I'm sure. <laughs> well, you know, you're telling the truth because I actually have enjoyed, I'm going to be honest, I watch a lot of like, you know, network news television. And I actually like the fact that now where you had to get up in the morning at 6 a.m., Daryl, go to a studio, you can just actually do it from your home, <laughs> which I think they should have did a long time ago. But there are some things where I think it makes sense or being able to do the conference internationally without having to travel there. But just think about all the times that you did take that 10-hour trip and all of the experiences and, as John said, all the people you met. So there are several policy issues raised by the widespread use of video conferencing. One is cybersecurity and concern over hacked calls or compromised conversations. How big of a problem are these issues and what should we do about them? So this is such an important issue. Uh, it's one, one uh, Daryl, that you mentioned that, that I've written about. First of all, there's uh, this, this 
almost complete, as far as I'm aware, reliance on Zoom. I mean, obviously, I know there are these other, there's Microsoft Teams and any number of other platforms, but at least in the higher education world, it seems like everybody's on Zoom. And I'm, if there's a backup plan at my university, I'm not aware of it. And may, maybe someone's got one somewhere, but I certainly, frankly, wouldn't know what to do if I tried to log on to, to teach my class, you know, one day and, and, and Zoom was down. And so there's an enormous sort of kind of single point of failure problem that I think most of American higher education and, and probably a significant part of K through 12 education and quite a bit of corporate interactions are, are tied to. There's also an interesting kind of tension that's arisen with Zoom, as, as you know, of course, it's, it's easy to, there's a record function and if you press it, then you can record. And so I've come under some pressure to uh, record my classes uh, at UCLA and there's some good reasons that people might want to do that. For example, if we've got some students who, for because of the pandemic, can't travel and are in a time zone where it's, you know, two in the morning or, you know, midnight at night or whatever, when I'm teaching my class, you can reasonably understand why that person might not want to be sort of forced to attend in real time. But I haven't, re I've, I've said I'm not going to record my class and, and because there's a downside as well. And for example, one of the things that we uh, are talking about in, in, this, in this class is censorship by authoritarian governments of the digital ecosystem. And I, I think it's going to be, it would be hard to have that conversation, have students frankly voice their views on that if they knew uh, those discussions were being recorded and archived on some UCLA server somewhere. And so I think for me, I've, I've made the decision that the advantages of, of aiming at least to preserve the, you know, the, the possibility of, of spontaneous discussions that at least I'm not recording, of course, I can't physically prevent someone else in the class from recording them, but at least I'm not affirmatively recording them. I, I think that outweighs, you know, the flexibility of being able to go back and access the class later on. But I, in, in saying that, um, I recognize that that's, you know, other people could find, you know, could, could view that differently. So it's a, you know, the privacy issue, the, the cybersecurity issues, these are all really important concerns. John, that does raise an interesting point in the sense that 20 years from now, some of these young students are going to be running for public office. And we know everybody goes back and looks at their background. What happens if these Zoom calls are online and were recorded and that becomes a source of opposition research? Like yeah, that could be the scandals of the future. And in fact, I have a chronicle of higher education piece uh, that I published, uh, ironically, just before the pandemic. I think it was January of 2020, where I said, here's why I don't record my classrooms. And I raised exactly that point, because you can imagine, of course, you know, if, if Zoom recordings existed of, you know, Joe Biden college days or Donald Trump's, you know, college classes, you know, there would be people pouring over them trying to find the slightest nugget of anything they said that could be, you know, used, mischaracterized, taken out of context, used against them. And, and you know, classrooms aren't, aren't sort of formally private spaces in the sense that there's no non-disclosure agreement, you know, in place that prevents a student from saying, you know, what another student said in classes. But there's some, there's some kind of, there, there's something there that, you know, that, that you know, the fact that it's not being recorded gives recorded normally gives students a higher degree of comfort in talking. And if we lose that, yeah, that information certainly would be mined later on. And these universities, by the way, they say that these recordings are only retained for the duration of the academic semester the, or the academic quarter, whatever calendar they use. But but I, I'm frankly a little bit uh, suspicious about that. I, I think that once these recordings get created, they're probably sitting in some server, you know, for for far longer than than many people would would be comfortable with. 
I now ask people if the uh, session is going to be recorded or if they do not explicitly say the session is going to be recorded, I want to make sure there's permission. And there have been different groups that actually send you now disclosures and consent forms because now it's not just the recording of the session, but the use of your image, right? Or the use of your opinion, because what we're not quite, you know, understanding as we do these meetings that a lot of what the content we're creating on Zoom lands up someplace, right? It lands up on the company website. It may land up on social media, uh, and so we've also created, I think, this economy of information that is much more widespreadly distributed, right, that we've ever seen before. I would also bring up this on Daryl on the cybersecurity side. I mean, I'm going to tell you the first ever, ever Zoom call I did when the pandemic hit was with a university. And it was just a basic, simple setup, you know, general Zoom account. It was part of a repurposing of an in-person conference, which is now virtual, and as I was giving my presentation with my slides up, the poor moderator turned red in the face and I could see like this, like uh, uh, fear and just anxiety as I was speaking and I wanted to stop speaking, but you know, my slides were up and basically I think I, I didn't go to the chat because I wasn't that sophisticated. I basically said, Hey, I just want to stop for a minute and make sure everybody's seeing my slides. And she said, Oh yes, yes, yes. Keep going. Keep going. Well, it turns out when I got off the Zoom presentation that there had been a, a bomber that had gone in there and as I was speaking was putting up the N-word and other expletives as part of the chat. And that was at an early form where I think we didn't realize how to manage that type of um, intrusion and hack that essentially still happens today. I was reading just recently about a young woman who was given uh, an orientation to women at Spelman College who had a hacker come in and essentially did the same thing in terms of racial expletives that they had to, you know, get off of that call quick because it was being recorded and the young ladies were seeing that or schools. Uh, my daughter was saying just recently, even though our school district has put in security measures and in some cases we're seeing people move from Zoom as a predominant platform to other platforms who have what they believe are better security features, the same thing, you know, where someone will get in and all of a sudden they're having a conversation in the chat which is quite embarrassing, but really hurtful and disappointing in terms of the level of engagement because of its because it's you know essentially racist or sexist. So I think you know given that, Daryl, I think there's a lot more that needs to be done to ensure the security of these networks. There have been rumors, and you know that you you pay for your privacy and your security on some of these platforms because it's almost it's so interesting to me that these platforms have been around for a long time, but they have grown in such prevalence that now you know they can be monetized differently. And so I think for the average person who has had to go to Zoom, like I mentioned, for family reunions or checking in on parents, they're unaware of these type of security implications. And they're the ones that you sort of read about on Facebook and other places where conversations just went wrong. In fact, somebody put a note that said Zoom gone wrong, you know, which is it reminds me of the early 90s when we used to see all those gone wrong videos <laughs> published. And so I think, you know, going forward, we're going to have to think clearly around what that looks like. And I know just finally that there are policymakers that will not come on Zoom because of those security violations. They use other platforms, which then requires uh, government agencies to direct their people to that platform or for external entities to figure out alternative platforms just to meet the ethical requirements of what government agencies are calling on. So I think it's more complicated than, you know, just flipping on your computer and having a webcam. I think going forward, there'll be policy implications that we'll have to explore. 
I mean, it is shocking that something like that can happen, and I'm sorry that you had to go through that uh, personally, but it does show we do need to take cybersecurity much more seriously on all these video uh, platforms. Another problem is digital access in that some people have access to high-speed broadband and video streaming while others do not. What can we do to narrow that gap and bring the benefits of digital technology to all Americans? Well, you know, I would just say this, if people read my book, <laughs> they would understand that closing the U.S. digital divide should be an imperative. The book, which is coming out through Brookings Press next year, is all about, you know, the digital invisibility. The title is Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. And what I find so interesting is when I talk about the new underclass, as I was doing research throughout the country around the digital divide, it wasn't so much the typical actors that are disenfranchised. It's the farmers. And now, Daryl, to your point, sometimes I'm on Zoom calls with really affluent people who are stuck <laughs> in their um, frame for several minutes because either where they live or where they are actually at at that moment in rural America or the fact that they may live in an urban area and just not have great bandwidth to uh, hold these conversations, you know, really amazes me because um, often I'm on these digital divide panels and that person will say, I guess I've actually experienced the digital divide um, and what it feels like to be frozen in time in a digital ecosystem. And so I think more needs to be done to continue to raise the resiliency of these networks to accommodate these high bandwidth applications. And we know we've done quite well over the course of this pandemic. I mean, we haven't had any major shutdowns, you know, reminiscent of the blackout in New York and other places where the grids were overly, you know, extensively used and not able to accommodate the demand. But what we are seeing is that equity matters. It can go as far as a kid not having home broadband access to something that a reporter pinged me on, which is a kid not having the appropriate background where they should be able to purchase or get access to Zoom backgrounds that sort of disguise their home conditions. And so I think going forward, we're going to have to address these networks challenges, these bandwidth challenges, as more and more people go to the network for these functions. But we also have to address these equity issues, whether they are, you know, the lack of access and rural in urban America in certain pockets, or it's the fact that, you know, I'll just share this because we can in a podcast and make it a little fun. I, I first got on Zoom in behind some really blank wall in my house, right? And so I was like, okay, this is cool. I've never done this before. I'm just going to sit in front of this wall and it's going to be all good. And then I started watching people with bookcases and, you know, some folks with artwork <laughs> and flowers. And that goes back to why I created my own little studio space because I said, I want my bookcase behind me. And as I was telling somebody the other day as a sociologist, that some respects that reflects the affluence and the wealth gap in our country. You know, what, where we live is actually being reflected every day, particularly for people on the news. We can tell, you know, their lifestyle just by their background. We can tell the comfort of their home. I, I cracked up in the beginning when my colleagues would be outside in front of their pool and I'm still, you know, behind my studio thinking, wow, if I was a person who was lower income or, you know, a young student who was looking at other people's backgrounds, what would I think about the context of America? And so I, you guys know, I always think this way. I have to stop, right? Get out of my head. But I think there are equity challenges that even go way beyond broadband that video conferencing will eventually surface around the inequalities systemically that we have in the country. I have a bookcase behind me so that people think I'm actually smarter than I <laughs> 
So, so that's my uh, rationale. Uh, John, your uh, thoughts on this uh, digital access question? I, I think Nicole's points were, were absolutely terrific. I'll, I'll just compliment them and add to them by just pointing out somewhat along the lines of what she was saying at, at the end of her, her response that it's not just about broadband. You know, if if you have, you could have a very high speed internet connection, but if, if there's a student, for example, who's living in a relatively small crowded apartment, maybe there are multiple younger siblings around who, who you know, you can't really tell them to stay quiet all day. It could be really hard to focus. So that that's squarely an equity issue that is also amplified uh, by the fact that we are forced to, to go online. I'll also say as, as concerning and important uh, as those equity issues are, and they are of profound importance, you know, it, it's also important not to lose sight of the fact that, that, you know, had this all happened 25 years ago, it wouldn't have even been possible to contemplate getting online really for anybody. Right. And so that, so we've, we've kind of, we've almost kind of all of us uh, have sort of taken it for granted that we have at least many people. And and the fact that not everyone does is of profound importance. And Nicole is absolutely right. But, but the fact that the fact that our challenge is to close the gap rather than the, than the, than the challenge of having nobody having the ability to engage, you know, with high speed internet, that that itself is a huge step forward over where we were 20 years ago. So as 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 horrific as this whole pandemic has been, its impacts would have been even more devastating had it occurred really as recently as say you know 10 or 15 years ago. Well, and I, can I just respond to that? I think you're completely right. I mean, I think the idea of doing what we're doing today, you know, is very indicative of sort of the way that communications policies have evolved, right? When I was growing up, you know, having a a, a beeper or a car phone was, you know, something of luxury. It was a privilege, right? And now we're hearing a lot of conversations around the importance of broadband. What I find interesting, you know, again, about the video conferencing space is who is online you know, in these video conferencing platforms, we really do an assessment of that. You know, the kid that is serving me as the barista in Starbucks is not getting online like we are, you know, and what modalities are we considering to be better modalities for getting connected? I mean, I, I'm a total disaster if I have to run any type of um, video platform on my phone, um, because I just, I can't hold it and talk at the same time. You know, that's not that agile. But I also think like we have to think through as a society, much like what we're dealing with this current divide, how are we creating a new divide? Like when I was in this space 20 years ago, right? We went from a digital infrastructure divide to a content divide, back to an infrastructure divide. Now we're going towards an opportunity divide. And I think until we start seeing that these technologies sort of come together to become sort of the narrative and of uh, and the talking points for how we care about the poor and the disconnected and the isolated and the older, you know, we're going to be having these technologies sort of, you know, leapfrog over certain social conditions that can be very traumatic for certain people. Um, and I think at the same token, and, and Dara, we talk about this, I mean, older Americans, it took my mother like at least five Zoom sessions to realize like she had the camera the wrong way or she couldn't see the doctor, or we could only see her eye, you know? And I think about seniors who have been, you know, later adopters to this, just thinking, you know, again, when you kill off analog and you kill off the ability of people to negotiate things in line, you cut off a lifeline of what people, like you said, John, have been used to. But when you leapfrog to a space where being connected not only, you know, involves a phone or a connection, but now some type of 
video facing device, you create another set of challenges that I think as a country, we should be really careful about um, making sure it's equitable. If we want to move to telehealth and education and workforce development services that are crucial to improving quality of life. I want to thank Nicole and John for sharing their thoughts with us about video conferencing. Uh, they write regularly on the Brookings website and you can find their work at our Tech Tank blog. Let us know if you have any reactions to this podcast. We look forward to hearing your suggestions. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.